Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. back it's time to get going on another uh episode of the mocking cast rj sarah how are you doing this week great good weather's good outside it's beautiful it's it's uh cold or what passes for cold in houston texas you know high 30s uh i'm a bit of a southerner now so my my blood is somewhat thinned out but it's it's beautiful looking forward to thanksgiving and i have my three brothers in town and their um kids and wives so it should be a party oh boy shay Heyman. Kids have the week off school, which is great. So, uh, yeah, looking mm. forward to kind of the holiday season. What about you there, Sarah? We're headed to uh, New Orleans next week for Thanksgiving. So, yeah, my brother lives there. So we're all going to rent a big house and my mom and my dad will be there. It'll be, yeah. I mean, we always say party when we mean like, hope everyone gets along. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it'll be a real party. So we're going out to eat. You're going out to eat on Thanksgiving? Yeah, I don't like wow. Thanksgiving food. So we're just all going to go out. I found a place that the kids' plates... Because you know it's expensive to go out for Thanksgiving. I found a place that the kids' plates are $12 a piece. And I thought they will eat exactly $12 worth of chicken fingers. So that's where we're going. <laughs> oh, man. Chicken fingers. What would we do? What What was the world like in the world without chicken fingers? That's what I want to know. A whole lot of screaming kids. Kids had to go out in the yard and snap the necks of their own chicken to make chicken fingers. That's what it was like. <laughs> they ate, actually, they just ate uh, chicken beaks. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, for me, it's a, kind of a big week. We we just opened the pre-order for the book that I've finished, Seculosity, how, um, how parenting, technology, food, religion, uh, career, I'm getting the order wrong, uh, politics and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. But it's... People go to Mockingbird or go to, uh, yeah, all of our social media outlets. You can find out how to do that. But post pre-ordering, I guess, is really important uh, for, you know, the way things get out there. It's Why so are you hard for Dave to, like, talk about himself in this way. He's <laughs> like, I'm in August. It's pretty exciting. I've got this book coming out. i got to talk about it. You should buy the book. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a it's great gonna book. It's going to change the world. It's going to be great. Hashtag Seculosity. Seriously, really is. Seriously, it's going to be great. It's going to be a really good book. Dave well, is bad about self-promoting. We remember when Dave Zoll was but a humble podcast host before oh, he ascended God. to his glory. That's right. I think, uh, thank you guys. Everyone's going to watch in real time as I try to wrestle with my demons about how do I promote myself in this book. Because I really do. I mean, yes, I wouldn't have written it if I didn't think it was great. If it was great, it was worth my time. I'm really excited with for it. But it's not till April does it come out. But right now is when we I got to start, you know, priming the pump. You got to hustle for your worth, man. Hustle. Yeah. Sarah, I was asking Sarah and RJ, I was asking you guys last week about what are the particular anxieties that people uh, who are in, in ministry deal with. And one of the things you said, Sarah, do you remember you said your, your worth is up for grabs or is on a trial in the pews every Sunday? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, that's just a little bit how it is when you're a writer or any kind mm-hmm. of creative person or any kind of basically, if you do anything publicly, it's, 
Yeah, it's 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 neurosis inducing. But anyway, uh, that's part of what I'm actually talking about in the book. So see, it's all meta. It works together, and you will be greatly enlightened and edified by this. Book. So integrated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Uh, Where to Cry in an Open Office by Gigi Lee. This was in the New York Times. I thought it was hilarious. A couple different people forwarded this our way. It's a kind of a opinion slash humor piece about um, the way that offices are laid out today. Uh, she writes, your company designed an open office space to break barriers and encourage interaction, but that makes it much harder to sob over a spreadsheet. Here are the best places to cry without your coworkers interrupting you. First, I'm just going to give you a few of my favorites. At your desk with your headphones on. The trick is to release your tears one at a time. Tears are a dead giveaway that you're doing crying stuff and not work stuff. Next, you could always cry behind Gary, the college intern. Your crying will be obscured by Gary's long lectures on the egalitarian benefits of an open office and how he took a class on labor and productivity, so he gets it. <laughs> uh, next, you could cry into your poke bowl. Pretend you're crying about the appropriation of Hawaiian food culture and not the disintegration of autonomy in the workplace. Uh, next, you could cry in the center of the office. The company doesn't believe in walls, so why build one around your emotions? After all, the company wanted to increase productivity, and you've never been more efficient with your crying in your life. And last one, uh, the restroom. This is where everyone goes to cry. Anticipate long lines. I think it's funny. funny. What do you no, think? it's funny. It's a little painful. Um, Poor Gigi. I wonder what she went through to write this piece. <laughs> I know. Like, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. I, I was thinking about like how many times have I cried at work? And I was like, oh gosh, I've cried at work a lot. But I've never been in an, in an open office situation in this way. And so there's always like plenty of like good places to like just sob. Um, it did remind me though of this one time when I went to Bonnaroo and we tent camped. So I was like miserable, like third hour in and everyone's like, on top of everyone else when you tent camp in those settings. I don't know if you guys have done this before, but you're like camping out of your car. So they're just cars backed up from us. Anyway, I just had it. So when they talked about like crying in the middle of the office, I basically just started screaming from inside the tent that like this was a terrible culture and this was a horrible place and there are drugs everywhere and everybody sucks. And... <laughs> Just pretending like the tent walls were real walls. And then I like opened up the tent and was like, and it was just like a wall of like young hippies like staring at me because they'd all heard everything I'd said. So that's what I thought of when I read this. It wasn't a workplace. A miracle, miracle. Josh still married me after. That was like two months before our wedding after I did that. Oh, my goodness. Miracle. That reminds me of that show Camping that I'm watching, the new Lena Dunham show that the critics hated so much. But I find uh, very funny, I got to say. But um Wow, Sarah. Wow. Yeah, That's again. my open office is Bonnaroo. RJ? Uh, you know, I I, uh, I can wear my heart on my sleeve sometimes. Mm -hmm. I've definitely been known to uh, to cry during, um, you know, teaching, um, preaching not so much for whatever reason. I'm definitely teaching, praying. Yeah, I'm emotional, but I also can close the door on my office and have a little moment mm -hmm. if I need to. You know, yeah. I, uh, yeah. So there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's your response. I don't know how I would do it in an open office setting. That would be uh, that'd be a little crazy. I would definitely have to go uh, take a walk or something. And not like I'm falling apart all the time, but yes, I definitely would need more than one hand to count the number of times that I've cried in a work setting. Um, but there you have it. You know, sometimes life is just too much, man. 
And then sometimes the material you're teaching on gets to you. That's that's also when I cry. When it's like this, this is this is powerful. This this means something to me. Like I care about what I'm talking about. And it's I try I try not to quote unquote bleed in the pulpit. You know, talk too much about personal stuff. But sometimes, um, you know, just it it touches me. So there you go. Male what are tears. You do? Male tears. I love it. It's like that's right. Hey, if Paul could write with tears, the Beach you know, Boys, and, and then then maybe I can I can teach with tears. So I, you, you, you do have to wonder how hard it must be to be an introvert in an open like I hadn't really thought about that because mm. you're just constantly interfacing with people all day long like I would go crazy there has to be a backlash at some point right because every house is like you know is it an open floor concept oh my is it an open floor plan you know and that's the same thing as the open office but I guarantee you 20 years from now no probably 10 years from now five years from now the thing will be how many tiny rooms do you have in your house yes I want 15, totally eight yes. by 10 rooms and that's it because yeah. everyone has to have their own space yep. and do their own thing. And yep. it's just, it's, it's going to be a constant back and forth. Right. You know? mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly it's a little bit of a people are lonely and at least the younger generation is looking to work to provide them with community, I think, and pretty clearly. And so that, that's what it's sort of this forced community thing, but you're also held accountable to, you know, the bottom line. So a little confusing. Moving on. Stan Lee, Stan Lee Lieber, Stan Lee, the Marvel Comics guru and founder and co-creator of uh, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, the Black Panther, X-Men, Iron Man, Daredevil. He died this week. He was an old, mm -hmm. old man. I think he was 95. Um, but it's hard to think of what our culture would actually, our actual culture, not the culture, you know, that we like to think we live in, but, you know, looking at kids' backpacks as they walk to school, or I had to do the chapel at the preschool at attached to our church this morning, and like three kids had on something advertising, something Stan Lee had created, and I was just mm. thinking about superheroes and what he brought to the table and the Marvel Universe. Are you guys Marvel, DC people? Does this matter to you? What? What's, where do you come down? Does, it, does this affect you at all this week with Stan Lee dying? I don't think I'm quite the aficionado that you are, David, in this realm, as with many topics, but I definitely lean more Marvel than uh, DC. You know, the, the recent Wonder Woman movie was good. It was okay. It wasn't great. And the Superman movies tend to sort of like be okay. I'm like, wait, how, how is he lifting an island made of kryptonite out of the ocean and flying it into outer space when this is supposed to be the one thing he can't possibly do? Like, give me a break, you know? But that's the beautiful thing about his, the, the Marvel universe is that their uh, his superheroes are conflicted and are, are, are people and become canvases onto which we can project our own hopes, fears, wishes, dreams, anxieties, um, that there's a, a depth. I mean, I still think Spider-Man 2 is one of the best movies, you know, one of my favorite movies, certainly maybe the best um, superhero movie ever made. And uh, Garden of the Galaxy, when I saw it in the theater, kind of restored my faith in Hollywood for a time because it was just so brilliant. Um, so I, I'm, I'm more the movie side of things than the comic side of things. I always thought Stan Lee's uh, persona that he cultivated and all those cameos in the movies, you see, you see him and everyone kind of actually, he's pretty instantly recognizable at this point. Yes. I was I always found it kind of be cheesy and lame. And when I read the early... Hitchcockian. Yeah, but you know. I read the early Stan Lee stuff that he wrote for Spider-Man. I wasn't that... I never... It felt very, very uh, old-fashioned. But, you know, then re reflecting on it and reading, especially my friend uh, Jeremiah Lawson, who's also known as Wenatchee the Hatchet, one of the things Lee has been credited with after he died, and I think before this, that Spider-Man in the Marvel Universe as opposed to the DC Universe, which is uh, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, they say Lee was the first one to create with Spider-Man superheroes who doubted themselves, who were tormented, mm. who were unhappy. And... Uh, 
Wenatchee uh, says Stan Lee managed to create a superhero Charlie Brown in Spider-Man, in Peter Parker. And given the constraints of the superhero genre in what's known as the Silver Age, that was no small feat. This idea that villains never die and people are always coming back to life, like that's that's very soap opera-y. And it's mm. also very... Um, it's also very uh, Stan Lee-y. But one of the things, I love this uh, thing, that this observation. You know, Norman Osborn is one of the great conflicts in Spider-Man comics was always that Peter Parker, his best friend was Harry Osborn. Harry Osborn's father, Norman Osborn, became the Green Goblin. And this is what the, the, the Spider-Man Sarah's stories. riveted right now. <laughs> Just <laughs> please go on. Oh my gosh. Please, yes, keep it coming. Keep this it, is no, so Dave, funny. I'm with you. I'm with she's you, acting, Dave. She's acting like this, yet I have never written about superheroes on Mockingbird, and she's written about both Wonder Woman and Black Panther. I just want ah, to throw that out there. It's true, throw that but out I'm there. just like, I was, I'm like, that's not the only thing that sounds like a soap opera, my friend. And you're like, so-and-so's brother married. I'm like, what? Or what? <laughs> Okay. But well, I'm then with you. I'm with you. Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Keep it. We want to hear it. Try this yes. on for size. Norman Osborn was the kind of bad father you might actually have to live with in real life, who yes. means well and rarely ever does as well as he means. That made Spider-Man comics so riveting in the Stan Lee, yes. Steve Ditko years. Unlike a Superman or Batman who could send the criminals to jail and then forget about them until the next time they broke out of jail. Jor-El, Kal-El. <laughs> Peter Parker could never have a battle with the Green Goblin without considering that if the battle went sideways and Norman died, then he'd be responsible for the death of his best friend's father. Winning in one realm of life nearly always meant losing in another realm of life. Spider-Man, and then also in Spider-Man comics, you realize he's constantly battling against usually male villains who are the age of who is what is is the father he lost would be. So there's a yes. huge amount of like a generational conflict going and on. And Uncle Ben and yes. Uncle oh Ben, gosh, he's, yes. like, he's constantly trying to replace his dad and that's Dr. Octopus. It's going sideways. And this kind of generational conflict, which is the subtext of superheroics and supervillainy, uh, I mm. never really thought of that as it relates to superheroes. So... I don't know. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Sarah Condon. <laughs> so it's sort of in the the wake of this, and people have written this piece. I mean, it's an obvious thing, but I've been struck by how many people in my life, really, he was this first, one of the first people that in pop culture gave a voice to the voiceless, just in terms of the people that he was willing to make superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a very good friend uh, from high school who's Jewish, and, you know, growing up Jewish in small town Mississippi is pretty much as marginalized as one can feel. And this was very personal for her to lose him um, because he mm. had, I can't remember what movie it is. Is it, is it one of the X-Men movies that literally starts at the gates of a whole, yes. Uh, yes. like a concentration yes. camp? Magneto, yeah. the Magneto origin story. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, he really gave kids who weren't seeing themselves in this stuff a real place to see themselves. Um, so I would say that, I mean, and certainly like Black Panther was just like a, a like, I mean, Black Panther was astonishing, um, astonishing. But uh, I was, as I was coming into work today, I was hearing people kind of call in and talk about what they had loved most that he'd done. And this mother called in and she said, she talked about how much she loved Spider-Man. That's the one with Uncle Ben. I'm getting that right, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. So she loves Spider-Man because her son is autistic and he loves Spider-Man. And um, deeply identified with Spider-Man. And when they had this just catastrophic death in their family, 
and they didn't know how to process it with him. She put the movie on and there's a scene where an Uncle Ben dies mm. and her autistic son got up and just hugged the TV and wept. Oh. And that gave him a way to process it that he wouldn't have had otherwise. So I think there's these really incredible, beautiful, obvious ways that he gave a voice to the voiceless. But in having such complicated, real characters, um, I mean, the, it's astonishing to me how many people have been touched by his work. But Dave, you're totally right. I mean, you just one need only survey the backpacks of a second grade classroom, you know, and it's like, what would they even have on their bags, you know, like if it weren't for these characters? And it does, it kind of teaches kids in a certain way that, you know, always the bad characters, oftentimes the bad characters have sort of a good motivation, that there's yes. no such thing as a as a bad person. It's just someone who sort of the ends justify the means, you know, and that they may, they're acting of what is arguably a good impulse, but they're willing to kill for its sake. And uh, yeah, man, Avengers Infinity War was was pretty good. I'm not sure if I'm if I'm quite recovered yet. So Sarah, There's, put that in your queue and watch it, baby. There's also so much research, developmental research around, and I don't know if your kids did this, but there's an age at which children like to identify most with the villain. Like I don't I like I can remember it's usually like three, four, and five. Like, it's like they play with that identity. So I can remember even when Neil was, like, really little and we'd watch Dora the Explorer, he'd be like, I'm a swiper. Because swiper's like the fox that steals Swiper, stuff. no swiping. Yeah, swiper, exactly. no swiping. Like, you've heard it before. Um, I love when Annie watches that because it'll only be on airplanes because that's when we do, like, the iPads with the videos. And she'll have her, her headphones on and she'll just randomly be like, backpack. Because you, like, talk to it, like, at full volume. <laughs> Hilarious. Or random Spanish, like, azul, you know. But, um... <laughs> It's uh, it it actually is interesting in that it it appeals to that very early part of us that wonders mm. what it's like to be villainous, which is ultimately who we all are anyway, right? We're all mm. villains. So um, yeah, I I love that it gives kids a voice to see what that's like from like a real a real perspective. So. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, I think that there is that there's totally that. Uh, they become stand-ins. It's like play. It's like the play therapy stuff we talked about a few weeks ago totally. with Dorothy Martin. And kids are acting out their own emotions through these characters, and they're almost. It's almost like a pantheon of Greek gods. Um, I I tend not to think that what Stan Lee there's there's not as much profundity going on with any of these as there is with the Greek gods. But I I don't think that's a stretch to say that. However, the the raw materials that he provided, folks, and so many so many. People have over the years taken these raw materials um, and crafted such amazing stories. But one of the things I would say that is remarkable to me within my lifetime to watch comic books and superheroes go from being one thing, which was basically nerd culture, like genuine nerd culture, to something that is not just part of the mainstream, but basically is the entire mainstream. And everyone decries why Hollywood is only superhero movies. And to watch it having taken over the entire medium, which was... um, Disrespected would be a nice word for it. I mean, just totally talked down to. And now graphic novels... I find them to be a lot of the most exciting creative expression yes. today is going on in that format, not just totally. superheroes. So I find that to be a really cool thing to have lived through in the midst of us creating, uh, talking so much about the the difficult things that are going on. I mean, uh, you know, there's no reason why superheroes necessarily have to exist I, or or these, these like kind of 
fabricated universes for us to play in and project our fantasies into. So anyway, let's actually go into something a bit more, at least on the surface, a little more serious. I came across an absolutely wonderful article by a writer named Sarah Dahl. She's writing for Comment magazine online, and she wrote this incredible piece called Trading Brunch for the Eucharist. And, mm. and not only is, of course, this whole seculosity with, you know, idea is on my mind, religious energy directed at sort of secular objects. This kind of uh, was a beautiful distillation of it and very funny, but also true and deeply touching as it relates to especially um, church. But she's talking about San Francisco, and I'm going to read this in two installments so we can sort of talk about it. She says, people have historically come to the West Coast and to San Francisco in particular in search of wealth, opportunity, or at least a new start. It's a city of newcomers where people shrug off or try to. Old places, traditions, prejudices like the winter coats they don't need any longer. This is also an area that lives by a creed my husband noticed almost right away, and her husband works in tech. The creed is, you should live better. You can't live here long without breathing it in the air, drinking it in the water. So much of our cultural, civic, business, and social life in this city is organized around optimizing everything all the time. A habit of mind that over time forms people in ways that make traditional church going, much less a deep embrace of any distinctly Christian vision of the good for human life, increasingly hard to understand. You should live better starts out innocent, innocuously enough. Drink better coffee, eat better food. Optimize your exercise and mindfulness routines. Craft a healthy work-life balance. Don't waste any times on chores that technology can solve for you, but do occasionally detox from your devices. Get your systems in place. Establish your flow. I can only speak for myself, but I suspect that many of us go about cultivating, curating, designing, and improving our lives as a kind of grand exercise in existential justification. We want to earn the right to the space we take up on this planet, or at least to squeeze the very best of our, of our patch of it. You should live better is a confession that teaches us to look at life in the world as a potentially perfectible experience and grants us permission to simply drop anything or any person that is unproductive, ineffective, or simply a waste of time. Now, I'd say that uh, I'm going to stop there and just say that it clearly what her diagnosis applies a lot further than just... San Francisco, although San Francisco is known as like basically the least churched place, I think, maybe outside of Portland in America. But RJ, you've spent a lot of time on the West Coast. And uh, Sarah, I'd love to hear from you guys. Where do you come out on it? I do get a little anxious with these pieces because I think it can make us feel self-righteous as churchgoers. Mm. Like we don't have our own ways that we're optimizing the church experience or thinking it's almost easier. I am romancing the idea that small churches are better in places where they feel obscure, but there is something innately and distinctly Christian about that in a way that maybe when when I'm in West Houston and people talk about church as like another community thing that they do, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure that's not optimization too. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible. We just import the the, the when we, when we talk about the law outside the church, we're we're immediately absolving ourselves from the law that's very much at work inside the church and all creation. I think you're right. I mean, I I go. I was at a church recently where, you know, the the worship band was just so perfect that I almost thought, 
I miss, um, there, there should be one old person up there that everyone is kind of just putting up with, you know, because right. not even old or maybe just someone with a bad ear, but really likes yes. being there because yes. if it's too perfect, it feels too, I don't know, worldly. It doesn't feel like there's mm-hmm. a crack in it. Um, mm-hmm. then it doesn't feel, I don't know, Christian to me, but I also note that what she's observing about San Francisco life is that there is this idea of optimization of people as machines and of mm-hmm. life as basically a process of making things as efficient as humanly possible to in order to produce as much as you possibly can. The deeper you drill into it, the more, I would say, distressing it becomes because it does turn people into, you can let go of those who are standing in the way of your own personal of whatever goals you've set before you. And, and the lost, the least, the last, even, even in theory, when it comes to Christianity, we're really, there's a different, the kingdom of God has different values. So what do you think, RJ? Because I do want to get to what she says about her church, I think is extremely powerful. Um, I think when I first moved to the Bay Area, uh, it was incredibly, by that I mean, uh, you know, to Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was incredibly liberating, you know, coming from kind of like a small waspy, wealthy town in New England to, to uh, just the sense of freedom of, of bigness and newness and openness and like the weather is beautiful. And it's just, I guess the Barry is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. Um, and I did I did make good friends, mainly through the church we went to, actually. We went to an amazing church, First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. Um, but I did also feel like, and I felt this more actually when we moved back to the East Coast from California. And admittedly, we moved into New York the weekend after 9-11. So it was pretty a heavy time to move back in. But there was a sort of sense of connectedness to people in New York that I didn't necessarily feel um, in the Bay Area where you would talk to people in the elevators, you would talk to your neighbors, you would say actually hi to people on the street. Um, and there was a sense of, of, yeah, disconnectedness. Like it was easy to make friends, but it was hard to go deep. Uh, but maybe in New York, it was harder to make friends. But once you did, there seemed to be more um, of like a lifelong connection there. So that's a little judgy. That's just my own personal, my own personal experience. Um, I, I remember at a little crossroads in my life and like, um, about 10 years ago or so, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be, I, I do remember thinking maybe I should go to the West coast where none of the stuff that seems to, uh, matter, or at least, you know, no one cares where you went to school. You're set free. No one cares where you went to school. Like stuff on the on the East Coast where sometimes it could feel like the past is encroaching in on you and things like, where did you grow up? Or what, where did you go to college? All that stuff. It doesn't really, it didn't seem to matter as much. Or this is what people told me about the West Coast. And I definitely remember thinking, that sounds great. Now I'm sure there are other standards by which people sort and categorize each other on the West Coast. And uh, Lord knows that seems to be the testimony of those who I've met who live out there. But I do think that that, that you know, where nothing is older than 50 years old, like it kind of, I see the appeal. Y'all are hilarious. I'm just sitting here thinking if I roll up in there and I'm like, I'm from Mississippi. I went to Ole Miss. Like folks on the West Coast are going to have an opinion. You know what I mean? Like y'all are like. They would try to pretend that they don't. All this like New England angst. I'm like, what? Like the whole thing where, you know, billionaires wear hoodies and stuff. You know, I remember someone saying, you know, you see a guy walking down the street and you don't know if he's a millionaire or a homeless person. And that doesn't really exist in New York City quite the, there's sort of a cultivated um, you know, uh, hostility to any kind of hierarchy. So there, there is that Dave a little bit, but, um, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about it. I, 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 I love California. I loved my time. Uh, I love my time out there, 
there are pluses and minuses to everywhere. I don't, you know, I do miss just being outside in like perfect 80 degree weather with no humidity every single day of the year, such that when it rained, I was like, oh, thank God it's raining. I can actually like stay inside and be lazy. Mm. You know, it was just, it was a, it was a very motivating, uh, motivating place to live. So well, let's get to what Sarah here uh, says about church, because she says, church, on the other hand, is an activity that is patently unproductive, often uncomfortable, sometimes boring, and occasionally anxiety-producing. Uh, so come to this table, says one of our pastors each week, talking about the Eucharist uh, communion. Uh, we are issued an invitation, not an imperative. Someone is waiting, regardless of our response. We, ourselves, our lives, our visions, our projects, are abruptly decentered. We find ourselves guests in someone else's home, on someone else's schedule, oddly powerless, yet loved and honored, strangers and sojourners, but welcome nonetheless. When we go to church and see a body, capital B, in the middle of the room, we are confronted with the one thing we hold in absolute common with every other human being on this planet. This is our end, too. We are dead men and women walking. At the end of the day, we will die, and honestly, the fact remains that the human experience is... In that sense, one giant failure that is wholly resistant to innovation, design, creativity, and optimization as we know it. Again, the body and the blood that lie waiting on that table ask, is this final accounting such bad news? The reason we set it out each week and eat it and remember Jesus' story over and over again is because it's only a bad thing to be dead if it's also up to you to get yourself out of it. When we go to church, we are reminded that we actually don't have a say in the matter, and that's the very best news of all. In his commentary on the parable of the prodigal son, Robert Capon imagines the father's loving rebuke to the elder son who refuses to join the party celebrating his brother's return. Look, we're all dead here, and we're having a terrific time. She talks about wanting to post that banner over uh, her... at over the altar at her church. Uh, a whole collection of dead people, all powerless to arrest even our own petty failures and cruelties, let alone our last breaths, are nonetheless invited to a party and made alive, not just eschatologically, but right now. I think as a portrait of church, it's a, quite a beautiful one. It's brilliant. I mean, this is like brilliant. I will say, so I, I just got to spend this, this past weekend with... Uh, with Melina Smith, uh, Mary Jacob Smith, rector of Calvary St. George's, which is where we do our New York conference. And um, I forgot how interesting and um, weirdly beautiful it is to do ministry in a city. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I forgot that like people just show up randomly off the street. And I forgot that like there's no cultural expectation that everyone's going to be doing this. And that it's, Kind, it's kind of amazing, but it's also really messy. And there's also like you, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? There's just like a, a like a quirkiness to it that um, that is unique to doing church in cities. I mean, you know, we it's have not our, sanitized, right? Completely, yeah. And it's and and there's and there's not enough money to fix everything, which is also something that's really nice. Like there's not enough money to fix that because you got these buildings that are like a hundred years old plus. Mm. And it's like money upon money to fix them. And so the buildings are as they are and the people walk in as they are. And, you know, there's something to me that's really marvelous. I noticed uh, we went to Evensong at um, Calvary St. George's on Sunday night. And I happened to have on a dress and uh, Molina Smith's sister, Marisa, who's a, who's a listener. Hi, Marisa. 
Um, she didn't. And she said, she's like, oh my gosh, like if I were in my, you know, church with my mom, like I don't have a dress on and it's like, you know, not dressed up enough. And I kind of looked around. I was like, that's it. I would totally think that in Texas, but here in this place that is so beautiful and old, but also is like old and beautiful, you know, it's okay. Like you really can. I don't know. I mean, I know that's a deep idealism of, because I know it is so hard to do church in those circumstances, but I'd forgotten how gorgeous and moving it was. Mm. A little decrepit. <laughs> I kind of like yeah. that. And the stuff she says about the body and cape in here. I mean, I I love that. Like it's, it's just, it, it, it must feel, I mean, in, in, even in the weekend I spent um, being in New York, it actually felt like an enormous relief in a place where you're kind of bombarded with imagery of perfection and better and more to walk into this place. It is as it is and welcomes you in. I mean, that's crazy. So. I was trying to find that quote by the, the for, I think it was the former dean of the Episcopal Cathedral in San Francisco. I, um, I think you said, it's a famous quote, something along the lines of, you know, we live in an age where when everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven, you know, that, that, that type of thing. And I think it's, it's interesting that he said that in San Francisco, because that's what it feels like. It, it feels like a, a culture trying to convince itself um, that sort of nothing, uh, nothing really matters necessarily, but it's not working. Um, and I was reading this article, I was thinking, you know, cause let's face it, going to brunch is awesome. Like going to brunch is really fun. Yeah, and that. sometimes you, Runny you eggs, know, bacon. you get up on Sunday morning and you know, I, I'm in church because I, I'm a, I'm a minister and I, I do love you. being there, but I'm also paid to be there. And some days it's like, maybe I'd rather go to brunch. Um, but what, why, like, why is that? You know, and I think clearly something is tied into if your if your impression of church is like someplace you need to show up and be something for somebody and prove something. Like I don't want to do that. You're doing that all week. You know, yeah. I'm doing yes. that all week. Right? Exactly. You know, and I know you know some people. I'm sure go to brunch to kind of see and be seen and be part of the scene. You know, every every city has its hot brunch spots. You know, and I guess then that's the exact same thing as church in a certain kind, a certain kind of way. That's not what I want. I want to go and be lazy and not take a shower and spend time with my kids and eat some good food. And and I I just think about that. What is it that people need on a Sunday morning that they might come to church to get that they're not currently getting or are worried that they're not going to get or worried actually they're going to get the opposite of. And how do we create, I don't say how do we create a more brunch-like experience at a church because that's not that's not <laughs> what we want to do. But what are the needs that people have, you know? Um, because I think the gospel does have a profound truth to share you know, with weary people, with tired people, but you also don't necessarily feel the freedom to show up at church tired. Mm. You know, you want to show up sort of bringing your best self. And someone's on a Sunday morning, like, that's that's a stretch, yeah. you know, to bring your best. And that's, I like what you guys are saying about it. If things are a little decrepit, a little saggy, a little um, not quite perfect, maybe it gives you permission to not to not bring your best self. I feel like that's such a vocation like our family has, like, at church. Like, because, you know, most Sundays I'm in the pew with kids. Yeah. And, I mean, I really, like, for anybody going to church, there's pressure. But I think for, especially for clergy spouses, especially if you're in oh a church gosh. where yes. it's like just you, which it was for the first couple of years, it's, there's enormous, pr I mean, I remember, anyway, there's so many stories about people realizing we were people, but I decided very early, we were either going to be an honest shit show 
or I was going to have to go on anxiety meds, like one or the other, you know? And so I just went for honest shit show. And like, it is like, I, <laughs> Josh sometimes gets a little put out because I have told people, numerous people, I'm like, kids have 45 minutes in them. So you either come 15 minutes late or you leave 15 minutes early and show enough, there's like a whole zoo that shows up like in the middle of the gospel of kids. Because it's just like, if people, I don't know, Aaron Zimmerman touched on this a bit in his piece about humor for the magazine. Like people, people have anxiety all week. And on some level, I think especially... Well, where we do ministry, um, RJ, because, I mean, Houston is, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of performances in here. I think people still feel the need to do that at church. Mm. And it's like, how do we make a ch- how do we make church just a place where people can fall apart? I, don't know. Yeah. I think we're cutting down a little bit on that at our church. I got to say, we've had amazing family service where, um, you know, I've said sometimes when I'm doing announcements like this, we want that this is church for people who can barely make it to church. Yes. And sometimes the family shows up looking beautiful and sometimes they do not and dad is not shaved and the yes. kid's hair is all over the place. And But there's 300 young families and children there. And so, you know, I always say, hey, if your kid's the loudest, you're just providing entertainment for the rest of them. Right. Um, and it's 45 minutes long. Right. You know, which is exactly minutes. what it needs to be. Um, and then that other that other contemporary, seriously, that other contemporary yeah. service, I remember the first time someone wore a pair of jeans, I went up and thanked him personally. Yes. I was like, yes, you wore yes. the jeans. Yeah. Bring it, you know? And people do, um, you know, our, our traditional service is gorgeous. So we do an amazing job of that. It's, it's beautiful. But sometimes people go back and forth because some weeks they want to, they want a beautiful transcendent formal experience. And some weeks they want to wear jeans and be with their, you know, loud, smelly kids. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so it's nice to have both. Offerings. It always makes me a little sad when what you're you're replacing church with is uh, like sports uh, games, like competition, which is, I mean, maybe more honest, mm-hmm. maybe more honest. I mean, I, I get it, and you don't want to. You're you're sitting there talking to your child, and you don't want the, to say no. You're not allowed to go to your game, but it's like uh, church is supposed to be a respite from competition, at least, or at least where you where it's the losers' club, as we talk about. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm I thought what she describes so beautifully is actually we're all in church. All the optimization thing to me is everyone is in church. It's a church of law, and it's it's you know you're we're too religious about too many things, and everyone is nonstop ex- trying to justify themselves. And wouldn't it be great if church was the one place where you could hear a little bit of grace? And that's why when she talks about the Eucharist, which usually kind of leaves me flat when people are like, well, then this is why. Well, you have to talk about the, the Eucharist. The Eucharist or communion. But when she's saying it's a the Lord it's the body, so there's something yeah. physical about it. It's not just uh, yeah. it's not just uh, online. It's not virtual, but it's broken. It's broken for you and that we are all broken and that this is God actually being, God is broken for you and with you. And that to me is a real... Um, it's extremely countercultural statement that will only get more countercultural, but I think also, um, God willing, will become um, j- j- just as good. It, it will not lose its luster, uh, even in its decrepit, cracks, crack lined, you know, um, edifice. I, I really have this um, sense that the anxiety related to our optimization projects, our replacement religions, is uh, killing us, basically. And I do have enormous compassion because I'm involved in all of them, too. And so my hope is uh, I would love to see more churches like what sh- like what Sarah Dahl describes, because 
what an what a what an amazing thing that would be to 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 run through the halls of an inefficient you know uh, what is it gusty building with where kids never stop running and uh, the coffee's always a little too dark it says and uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the the minister's always maybe a little off his off his or her game and um, right. I don't know. I think that, that that experience of imperfection, but also with forgiveness at the core of it, is something that um, seems more exciting to me than ever as I get older. Totally. Totally. I have yet to like stand across the street from Calvary St. George's and see the sign that they still brazenly have up that says uh enjoy your forgiveness and not well up. Like every time I see it, I'm just like, what a mm. crazy thing to put on your church to speak that over this city, like into these people as a word of welcome and of love, but just like, what yeah. a crazy thing, you know? So we're a bunch of dead people having a great old time. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the graveyard. Well, let's leave it at that. I think enjoy your forgiveness. Uh, you guys, both of you this week, hashtag seculosity. Hashtag seculosity. Did I do okay there? Did I, did I work? Yeah, Kill it, Dave. Nice. Kill it. <laughs> nice. Well done. He's been practicing for hours, folks. So <laughs> nailed it. Well, you guys are the best. Thank you for being here. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. <laughs>